Well, hello again. Good to see everyone. Glad that you've made it. It is good to be God's people together. It is good to be with you all. So uh, we just read the Beatitudes, which are Jesus's surprising pronouncements of blessing on all of those people who everyone was just convinced were not blessed. And so I think this is really doubly shocking, not just because Jesus is saying blessed or the kingdom is at hand and available for all the wrong kinds of people. It's also shocking because everyone is asking the question, I think at some point in your life, am I blessed? Am I on God's side? Are you with me? Our kids, when they start to hear about God, and when they start to hear about maybe Satan, or they start to hear about H-E double hockey sticks, you with me? They want to know, how is it that I get on God's good side? How do I know if I am blessed? Is the kingdom for me as well? And so this is the question that I think adults ask too. We ask it because at some points in our life, we're going to go and seek out a way to be blessed, and we may fill that with material things for some time. We may fill that with relational things at some time. We may go and fill that with our jobs or our status, and we might feel good, but ultimately, sometimes some adult will stay awake at night and wonder, yeah, but is that really all there is? And I think many times in our culture, Am I blessed or not really is a question that's reserved, I think, maybe for the deathbed if you're not asking it at some point in your adult life. I think someone somewhere will eventually ask it always, and it may only be when you're in the twilight of your life. Who is blessed? How can I be in, right? Everybody wants to be in, not out. Jesus, in surprising fashion, in his last teaching, if the Beatitudes, look, in the Gospel of Matthew, are his first red letters or public teaching in the big Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to look at tonight in Matthew chapter 25 picks up that idea, who's blessed, and he really sends us into shockwaves or panic or surprise when he closes this bulk of teaching in Matthew with who is blessed, because he also says who is cursed. And it's surprising because he tells us the criteria to whether these people are in or they're out. Are you with me? We start in Matthew with Beatitudes that we just read, but tonight I'm inviting you to look at Matthew 25 with me. Matthew 25, we'll begin in verse 31 at the end of Jesus' teaching, and this is at the end of his section where Jesus is teaching on the last things. When this age as we know it passes away and the new age dawns, this is what it's going to look like. As you turn to Matthew 25, it's been a couple weeks, so I'll remind you that we've been in the summer of love. Are y'all tired of me saying it that way yet? Jared Kemper shaking his head, yes. We're in the summer of love, Jared. We're in the summer of love, and what we've been doing is trying to suss out what does it mean to love our neighbor as ourselves. We started with loving God, getting your view of the God who is love right, make that your foundation, and then we're building a house that says, okay, so how do we love 
enemies? How do we love neighbors who are our neighbors? How do we love those who are different or outsiders for us? And tonight, we're not only going to look at the question of who's blessed, who's not blessed, but we're going to look at this question of how do we love the people that Jesus talked about, and that is how do we love the least or how do we love the needy? That's what we're going to look at. Hope you're there in Matthew chapter 25. And let's read that together. I'm going to read the whole chunk because I want to get the whole weight of it. And then we'll go back and kind of sort out these questions. Who's blessed? Who's the least? Who's the cursed? How do we love those who are in need? You with me? All right, verse 31. It's on the screen. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king, this is that son of man figure, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then here's the surprise. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? This is the central piece here. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So then come the next group, the goats, and watch the exact parallel and the same criteria that you do for these least like you would do to me. 41, look at it. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. Now they're surprised too. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these. You did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, this is a really tough passage for me. It really messed me up yesterday. And Lord, I don't want it to mess us up tonight. It is your word. It is your teaching. So we just ask that we would be people who have ears to hear and eyes to see, and more than that, Lord, that we would also have feet to follow you, that we would be with you to learn from you how to live like you. Lord, we ask that we would love the way you've loved. 
even those who we encounter in great need. Please bless us this evening. We ask all this in the strong name of our shepherd. Amen. Amen. St. John of the Cross said this, In the twilight of light, excuse me, in the twilight of life, God will not judge us on our earthly possessions and human successes, but on how well we have loved. What we see in this passage is he's right. And at first you might say, well, no, 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 he's judging us on the criteria of feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. Yes, that's true. But ultimately, these are acts of love. And as we've been looking at in this series in the summer of love, what is love? Well, love is relating to an other as valuable, right? Love is other-centered. So you encounter the person who's hungry. There is two parties to tango. And what you do to love them is you look at them and you say, okay, I'm going to relate to you as valuable. Not a project to be solved, but a person who's in need. And what makes it distinctly Christian is the last part of our definition, and that is this. It's relating to that other as valuable, even or especially at cost to yourself. This is distinctly Christian because this is the kind of love that the God who is love showed the world. John, in his letter, 1 John, said, This is love that he gave. I can say I love my wife till I'm blue in the face, but if I'm not showing her, it doesn't mean anything. We can say we love tacos, but what we mean is we like tacos. We say that Ramon likes chocolate, and actually what I do mean is he loves it. He relates to it as valuable at cost to himself. He eats enormous quantities of chocolate. Buy this man some chocolate and ice cream and root beer, and he will be your friend for life. That's what I did, and we've been going strong for a long time. Because love is relating to another is valuable. And to put it even more succinctly, we've been saying it this way. Love, then, is sacrificial action. So when St. John of the Cross says, at the twilight of life, we're not going to be judged on all the religious do's or don'ts. We're going to be, we're going to be judged on how well we have loved. The reason this is a difficult passage for many of us is because it shows judgment, plain as day. And it shows the fact that there is a judge. And Matthew, quoting Jesus, refers to this judge as the Son of Man. Do you see that in verse 31? So who is this judge, okay, who's judging on how well we've loved? You with me? This judge is the Son of Man, and do you see what he does in that first section there? He rounds up all the nations, or that's a way of saying all the peoples will be gathered before this Son of Man. And what's in view here is this. This is some sort of, not quite parable, but some kind of future scene or vision that Jesus is putting out there. And he's giving them a snapshot or a sneak peek of the end of time as we know it and the beginning of time where Jesus is reigning in fullness and he's using language that evokes a well-known passage 
for the Jewish people, the spiritual religious people of his time, they would have known well, and that is Daniel chapter 7. It's not on the screen, but if you're writing anything down, Jesus has in mind here Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. And this is a scene in which when all of God's scary, gnarly enemies are done for, there is one that Daniel sees in a similar kind of end-time vision that Jesus is talking about. There is one, he says, who looks like a human one or a son of man. And this son of man comes to the throne of the Father. It's not so much that he's like rapturing people like left behind. No, no, no. What Jesus has in view, what Daniel has in view, is that after all God's enemies are defeated, the Son of Man comes to what's called the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, the OG, and the Ancient of Days, God the Father, says to the Son of Man, all authority is yours, and all the nations bow down, and they see this Son of Man as a king. Jesus speaks of the Son of Man here as a shepherd, king. Do you see that with me? So he comes in his glory, all the angels with him. He's sitting on the throne. All the nations will be gathered. And then he separates the people right down the middle. And he puts one on the right and one group on the left. In the Middle East today, if there are shepherds, grazing their flocks out on the fields. They'll have sheep and goats mixing it up together. And at the end of the day, Jesus uses this shepherd imagery that's still happening today, and he brings them back into the pen, and he says, okay, sheep, you go over here, because sheep, have y'all seen a sheep? They're pretty nasty, actually. And I'm afraid I'm going to call us, who are loving like Jesus calls us to love, sheep, but they're pretty nasty. But you know what the sheep has before he gets shaved is this big old chunk of wool. And so they can huddle up and they can handle the cool Middle Eastern nights. But the goats, those poor goats, they got their big pot bellies and very fine, thin hair. So he separates the sheep and says, y'all are cool over here. And the shepherd brings the goats over here and says, y'all hang out, get warm, because they can't hack it in the cool evening. So Jesus is using the Son of Man imagery in their religious life, and then he's using the shepherd imagery in their day-to-day life. And so all of a sudden, people are starting to say, okay, okay, I'm tracking with you, Jesus. I got it. So then he's separating the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Now, what the Son of Man is doing here is judging. And in America, we hate that word, judging. We want to quote Jesus when he says, judge not, lest what? You be judged in the old King James. You with me? We love to quote Jesus there, but we dislike when Jesus starts to talk about, okay, now we're separating people and he's judging us. But you can't get far and say, well, I like Jesus' teachings, but I don't like this part of the teachings where he talks about judgment because he talks about judgment quite a bit. He talks about judging. And here's what we need to understand. Judgment is justice. The Son of Man has to come and judge because he's got to put right what's been put out of balance. He goes around as a prophet and he's saying, look, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the put down, spat upon, oppressed. I will raise them up and the wicked who have brought hell on this earth will go into some sort of 
punishment or separation. They will continue to live separated from God and others. And he's got to set these things right and judge this. So what Jesus is doing is bringing justice. And justice is an extension of love because he's valuing now the unvaluable. And what's surprising here at this point is everyone is beginning to think, okay, I am certain I am one of them stinky sheep, not one of them scrawny goats. I am certain I'm on the good way. So here's that question now. Jesus has set the scene. He separated the goats. And now the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now, everyone at this point says, okay, I got it. I'm a sheep. I am certain. And so now Jesus is going to say, who are these blessed ones? How do you know you're in? Let me just stop there real quick. Because when you think about a war, every side, both sides, are just certain that they are in the right. Bob Dylan has an old song where he goes through all these different conflicts and wars, and every time he says, with God on our side. Because both sides are convinced that they're the right side. And Jesus is about to upset these people, upset these hearers, and shock us today, because if we think we're in by virtue of all the religious things we've done, he's going to surprise us by the criteria by which he's judging. You with me? Here's the criteria by which he's judging. These sheep will inherit God's kingdom. Why? Well, they must have been allegiant to God's king. Now, what Jesus is about to say is, if you're inheriting the kingdom, it must mean you're allegiant to the king. And it must mean that it's going to work itself out in your life. And you'll see that the tree was good and right because its fruit is good and right. You with me? He says this, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. The sheep are the sheep because they followed the example of, of the shepherd. They are not there because, watch this, because they've done this. The first step was they've followed the shepherd. And by their actions, they've revealed they love the shepherd. Jesus says earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, You know a tree by its fruit. This is the good fruit that he's after. So, who are the blessed ones? It's on the screen. The ones who, by their actions, by their love for the least, that sacrificial action revealed they loved their shepherd king. Sacrificial love, watch this then, does not just require an awareness of these needs, but action. Jesus says, I was hungry, and you didn't say, oh, well, let me pray for you. Jesus says, well, I was thirsty, and you said, hey, man, well, you know what? Tough, dude. I'm sorry about that. I really can't help. What's happening here is this. You have been so captivated by the shepherd who aligned himself with the poor, 
who fed the hungry, who lifted up the oppressed. You've been so captivated by him. You've pledged your allegiance and said, Jesus, I'm going to follow your ways, that it's changed your heart, and you are going and doing likewise. This is what's after. This is what he's after. It's not enough to just say, oh, I see this need. Because like we said a couple weeks ago, with the violence that broke out in our city, all the Facebook status posts in the world might bring awareness, but it will not transform our neighborhood. What's going to transform our neighborhood is when we go to those who are different and we say, I don't see this us versus them. I only see you. I see you as a valuable person. How can I then meet your need and show you I care? Maybe it's a physical need like we see here. But what I want us to see is this is less about a how to be a sheep and more of a reminder that if you are a sheep, we are doing these things. And I'm convinced more and more that we are growing and walking into a kind of church who takes seriously these kinds of needs. Because we need to follow our shepherd who was attending and being with the sick, healing the sick, and bringing the kingdom one life at a time and demonstrating the kingdom one act and work of love at a time. Are you with me? That's the first surprise. This criteria for being a blessed one is being a blessing to others in need. We can believe the gospel all day long that says good news to the poor and the least and the lost and the looking. We can belong to one another and say, yes, I'm with you, I'm there, I agree, I believe. But if our believing and belonging is not overflowing into the streets and hearts of others who've not yet been found, we need to go back at square one and say, are we believing properly the shepherd king who told us, come to me, then come follow me, go do likewise. This is what we're after as a church. We want to be sheep people. Who is blessed? It's the one who by their actions have revealed their love for the shepherd king. Basically, you're in and a blessed one if you are a blessing to others in need. That's how you tell. Well, what about these ones in need? This is what they ask him. Well, then they say, well, Lord, wait a minute. I did not see you. I saw this person down the street. I saw my brothers and sisters who were in prison because they were persecuted for your name. When did I ever see you? And this is another shocking statement here. I tell you in verse 40, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So who are the least of these brothers and sisters of mine? In some mysterious way, answer number one is this. They are in some mysterious way united to Jesus. Or rather I should say, Jesus has united himself to them. So this should immediately snap us into thinking, okay, what is going to be my default setting on my eyes and the eyes of my heart when I encounter this person on the street who is in need? Am I going to see them like Jesus sees them? And more than that, am I going to relate to them as valuable just as I would Jesus? Because in some way, I can't run for this. I can't explain it away. Jesus has aligned himself with these starving orphans in the difficult developing places of India, in Africa, and all over the world and at our back door. And we need to go to Jesus. 
Because you can't love the children who are starving. You can't love the coworker who is in need. You can't love the man or woman on the street unless you go to the street. This is why Facebook statuses all day long, it may bring awareness, but what transforms our neighborhood is going to where these people were. Because when Jesus saved the world, he went into the world. When Jesus came, he emptied himself of all the things that could have uh, looked like this son of man he's talking about. He looked like a poor, destitute, homeless peasant who ran with all the wrong people. Does our church look like that? Because I'm convinced the sheep at the end of the age will look like that. So who are these least? Well, he says these brothers and sisters of mine. So certainly he's got a need. They're all the followers that came after me, my brothers, my sisters, the one who do the will of the Father. They're all these people who've been persecuted, who've been spat upon and oppressed. So in some ways, they are the followers of Jesus who are in need. Are we helping each other in this community? Are we helping those in our community who need food, who need drink, who need a person to sit with them when they're sick to encourage them? Are we belonging well? But certainly Jesus also has all in need in mind because as we've looked at in the Good Samaritan in the weeks past, Jesus, when asked, who's my neighbor? He rezoned the neighborhood and said, anyone, even the worst and the least you see, you're to love as yourself. Jesus rezoned the neighborhood. And the more you try to define the least and say, well, they're not really in need or they don't really need what I've got to offer, the more you start to look like a goat. So who are the least? It's the people that you meet who need something you can give. We can talk or bring awareness to the fact that in this world, the poverty in this place is unbelievable. Globally, 1.2 billion people, that's 22%, live on less than $1.25 a day. Now, if you raise that, increase the poverty line to 250 a day, the global income poverty rate comes to about 50% or 2.7 billion people. Who are the least? Just statistically, who's in need? Half of this world. And we should look at a country like ours and say, wait a minute, what does poverty look like? What does need look like? But you, you don't have to just say, well, uh, you may live on more than a dollar a day, but you're, there are still people in our community that need help just surviving basic needs. And we can meet those in our own backyard. Another statistic, this comes from the World Bank, a third of all these poor in developing world are children 0 to 12 years old. The sheep are sheep. They're blessed if they're being a blessing to the least and the little. And then finally, here in our own neighborhood, they do this every January, the Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance. There are over 3,000 homeless people living in Dallas. These are the kind of least we encounter all the time. And you know what? Just putting them in a house does not solve their problem. Jesus solves their problem. Because they're not there, many of them, just because they're 
ran out and got foreclosed on. Some of them are, but many of them are in, in oppressed with addiction and in a cycle of poverty that has gone back generations. And so I remember one man that we encountered through our calling that you guys know well. If you've been with Amy on a Monday or you've been with Aaron on a Sunday or we've gone on Saturdays and Good Friday, a man from our calling who's homeless was asked point blank, when you're panhandling, what do you do with the money that you receive? And he says 99.9% of the time, he says, I'm going to be real with you, it goes to drugs because I know where food is. I know where clothes are but I need money to support my habit. And he said this, and I'll never forget it. What I don't need is a handout. What I need is someone to give me a hand up, to relate to him as valuable, even at cost to myself. Sheep, it is, in many cases, feeding, clothing, but it's also coming alongside even more than that because that's the kind of thing that costs us even greater. Are you with me? Who are the least? We don't have to look far. We can look in our community. We can look in our world. We can look in the streets. But the sheep, I think, are hand-up people. So I think a good question, whether you're asking our homeless friends or uh, just anyone you meet, is what is the most good I can do in my power for this person? What can I give to meet a need that is for their most good? Basically, am I joining with Jesus to bring them life? Because as we see in this final section, there are those who are on their way to death because they were a part of not bringing life, but bringing death by not meeting the needs of those they encountered. Look, at me, look with me in this last section here. After Jesus says, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine you did for me. Look at verse 41. Then he turns to those on his left. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, in this church, we don't talk about hell a lot. It's not because I'm scared to talk about hell. Jesus was not afraid to talk about hell. But what Jesus talks about in Matthew are many images that evoke some horrific scenes. He talks about uh, Gehenna, or uh, what's sometimes translated just as hell in Matthew, as a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where dead things went and the flames were burning it to deal with the trash pile. Just like those people in East Texas that ain't got their trash trucks, they got to burn their trash. This is what's happening then. He also talks about this kind of shadowy, uh, non-life, this death and punishment type of place as an outer darkness. That these people who are cast out, separated from others, and separated from God. And here he talks about it as an eternal fire, and who's it prepared for? A lot of times in the far side cartoons or in like the old movies, you know, uh, you see like where Satan is like in this throne and he like rules hell. And he's like, you know, saying, you need to get this whipping 
punishment in room 42. Go over there and you do this. And the demons go and like do his bidding. The reality is this place, this judgment that we're talking about is for the devil and his angels who have opposed God and God's people. And so what Jesus is talking about is that those who are facing judgment are in some strange way, some way in this world in league with them because they're opposing and rejecting God just like they did. And they're opposing and rejecting God's people just like they are. When Jesus, the king, is talking to these people and they say, well, wait a minute, dude. He says, you did not feed me. You did not care for me. You did not sit with me. And they say, well, when did we do that? We never saw you. He said, well, you never cared about people. So when we talk about judgment, when we talk about those who are cursed, We are talking about the ones who by their actions reveal that they have not loved the shepherd king. The ones who by not loving Elise reveal they have not loved the shepherd king. When we think about judgment, when we talk about hell, I don't pretend to know what that looks like. I have several ideas about it rooted in scripture that may be different from what you've heard. Let's talk about that in another time, not tonight. What I do want to talk about and what Jesus is talking about is this. The life that you live today in some way will continue on into perpetuity. Y'all know that word, perpetuity? An object in motion, a life in motion will stay in that motion unless what? Something else changes its direction. When Jesus comes on the scene and says, repent, The kingdom of God is at hand. He is talking to a bunch of people who have been going down one way, and it is a way to destruction. When Jesus talks in this section about the Jewish people who've not gotten on board with God's king, God's Messiah, he's talking about people who are headed to ruin at the hands of Rome, an ultimate ruin in league with the devil and his angels who've opposed God and opposed his people. You with me? So, When we're talking about judgment, we're talking about if you've lived your life in which you've rejected God, you will be given a state in which you're separated from God. If you've lived a life in which you've made hell and death for others, in the next life, you will experience some kind of separation and death cut off from others. This is what he's talking about. These cursed ones are ones who have had no regard for God and his king and for others. And remember that both are surprised by this criteria. And both are evidencing in their actions. If they love the least, it's because they've loved the shepherd. Stanley Hauerwas says it this way, the difference between followers of Jesus And those who do not know Jesus is that those who have seen Jesus no longer have any excuse to avoid the least of these. We are called to be a people, the sheep of his pasture, of a shepherd who showed us how to love the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, those in prison, those oppressed. 
And we're to be a church that follows suit because when we love those people, we are loving Jesus. When we love those people, we're loving Jesus. And we love them, relate to them as valuable at cost to ourselves when we're meeting their physical needs in his name. When we're about giving more life and more justice in this life and not more death and injustice by not meeting their needs. But I want to close with this. Guilt is a terrible motivator. Don't walk away and say, okay, I've got to go meet more needs. I've got to go because I feel really bad and I don't want to wind up a goat. Let me tell you this. If you are in Christ, not one thing can snatch you out of his hand. Not one thing can separate you from the love the Father has for you in Jesus Christ. You may not feel it. You may not experience some kind of mountaintop high, but that does not change the fact that you are loved more than you could ever imagine that you are cared for and fought for more than you could ever begin to let yourself believe. Nothing can separate you, even when you're the one on the need side, not famine or nakedness or danger or sword, nor anything on earth or under the earth, nor angels nor demons. This is Paul in Romans 8. Not one thing can separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ. So guilt is not of Christ. When we're talking about conviction, we're talking about a thing that brings you to Christ, not from him. So if you're in a position and you say, well, I'm not really living like a sheep. If you are a sheep, run to the shepherd. Be transfixed by the one who loved all the wrong people. Be enraptured by the one who welcomed the thief and sinner and outcast. Be just so captivated by the one who looked at the woman who was beaten and an inch away from death being stoned and he looks at her and calls her daughter. Because even in the depths of your sin, God's grace reaches much, much further. If you've hit a rock bottom and you keep digging, God will meet you there. And he will offer you a hand up. And we as your church, trying to be sheep people, will try to offer a hand up as well. Guilt is a terrible motivator. Grace is our motivator. When you've understood how much you've been given, you're free to give. It's not my stuff, it's God's stuff. It's not my money, it's God's money. And it's on loan to me for you. And when you understand how much you've been blessed, you are free to be a blessing to those in need. So may we look to our shepherd and see in him one who has called all the lost, all the looking, all the left out, all the needy, and may they find what they need in him. And may we help them along the way as they go. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your unfailing, never-stopping unfathomable love for us. 
We are so surprised at you that you would empty yourself, that you would take on human form, that you would not count equality with your Father, something to be exploited or held on to, but you made yourself nothing. You made yourself obedient, even obedient to death, death on a cross. So Lord, would we find you in the faces of those we meet? And may we give what we need to give, even if it costs us, because you gave your life. So at the very least, may we give our stuff. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May the Lord our shepherd lead us to the lost, to the looking, and the least. May we feed the hungry, satisfy the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, heal the sick, and visit the prisoner. Because we love the least, we are loving Jesus. Go in peace.